I am pained at the marrow of my heart. My heart voice sobs within me. I cannot hold peace, because thou hast heard, O my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. In a vision, I beheld the earth, and lo, it was without form and void, and the heavens, and they had no light. I beheld the mountains themselves, and lo, they trembled, and all the hills moved lightly. I beheld, and lo, there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens fled. I beheld, and lo, the fruitful fields of abundance were turned into a wilderness, and all the cities thereof were broken down. For thus has the Lord said, The whole land shall be desolate, for this shall the earth mourn, and the heavens above be black, because I have spoken it. I have purposed it, and will not repent, neither will I turn back from it. The whole city shall flee for the noise of the horsemen and the bowmen. They shall go into the thickets and climb up upon the rocks. Every city shall be forsaken, and not a man shall dwell therein. And when you are taken, and your women are taken, and your children are sold into slavery, what wilt thou do? Though thou clothe thyself with fine attire, though thou deckest thee with ornaments of gold, though thou cut thy face with your own makeup, in vain shalt thou make thyself beautiful. Thy lovers will despise thee, they will seek your life. For I have heard a voice as of a woman in travail, and the anguish as of her that bringeth forth her first child, the voice of the daughters of Zion, that bewaileth herself, that spreadeth her hand, saying, Woe is me now, for my soul is wearied because of murderers and rape. Jeremiah chapter 4, hear the voice of the sacred prophet. Hello and welcome to Battlecast, I'm Dr. Luke Wolf, and today we've got something completely different. The most violent prison riot in United States history. It's the New Mexico prison riot, and it's an object lesson in violence, force, and power. From the outside, a veritable army of police surrounded the fortress-like prison. Inside, prisoners had raided the medical clinic and gone on a drug-fueled rampage, settling scores and torturing other inmates for days on end. The violence became so bad, so brutally vicious, hundreds of prisoners who could not escape went and lay down next to the perimeter fence of the prison in order to be protected by the army of police surrounding the penitentiary. Yet again, here is still another example of the basic political truth articulated by numerous philosophers, protection therefore obligation. Inside the prison is anarchic freedom, total liberation including hardcore violence. What could be more free than sadistic murder and rape? And yet, faced with this freedom, the vast majority of the hardened prisoners preferred the security and open air of the perimeter fence to the libertine paradise of drugs, rape, and violence taking place in the hellscape of the penitentiary of New Mexico. This is a story, and this is the empirical validation of real politics, not some effeminate dream fantasy about what good mankind can achieve but an actual case study of what mankind always achieves when he is given total autonomy, death, destruction, pain, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Come with me and I will be a second Jeremiah and show you the fall of the city. But before I can do that, I've got to thank Jim from Redding, California, Oliver from Adelaide, South Australia, and Jeff from Iowa City for buying us around. And if you want to buy us around, head over to thebattlecast.com and hit that make a donation button. But before we get rolling, I've got to tell you, it's been a crazy month here in Autumnville. You know it's bad when you're on a first-name basis with everyone who works at the emergency room. I promise you, my kids can look at a set of monkey bars and break an arm. I was afraid they were going to start spontaneously combusting. They hurt themselves so much this month. 
They're probably upstairs right now ripping out the copper wiring to sell for scrap so they can buy $50 worth of candy from Walmart. So that's what I've been up to. It's been crazy. But now, do you remember the prison riot scene from the film The Watchmen? This story is the direct inspiration for that scene. It's inhuman torture, heads exploding like pumpkins, eyes rivering pink, brackish blood. It's Battlecast. No one expected that New Mexico would be the scene of the most violent prison riot in American history. Most observers thought a state with worse race relations, a place like Attica in New York or Angola Prison in Louisiana, would be the place to explode with problems. But like the race riots of the 1960s, it was where our genius observers least expected trouble. That was where it burst out. No one could believe it in the 1960s. No one could believe it in 1980. Treeless and flat Santa Fe, New Mexico. Could there be a more out-of-the-way place, a place less on the minds of the coastal elites? And yet it was here that an orgy of anarchic barbarity broke out. University of Colorado professor Mark Colvin provides this excellent summation of life at the prison of New Mexico, so I'll just quote him. Quote, The riot that began at the penitentiary of New Mexico in Santa Fe at 1.40 a.m. on February 2, 1980, is without parallel in the penal history of the United States for its brutality, destruction, and disorganization among the rioters. In the 36 hours before order was forcefully restored by the New Mexico State Police and National Guard, 33 inmates were killed by other inmates, 12 were first tortured and mutilated. The exact number of inmates injured during the riot is not known. Almost 200 inmates were beaten and raped. The New Mexico Attorney General reports that at least 90 inmates were treated at local hospitals for overdoses of prison pharmacy drugs and for injuries sustained in fighting among inmates. Seven of the 12 correctional officers who were taken hostage were beaten, stabbed, or sodomized, though none were killed. No inmates or hostages were killed or injured during the retaking of the institution by authorities. Unlike the 1971 inmate revolt at Attica, New York, in which a high degree of inmate organization, solidarity, and political consciousness was evident, the New Mexico riot is notable for the fragmentation, lack of effective leadership, and disorganization apparent among the rioters. The prison in the early 1970s was relatively calm. After 1975, it became increasingly violent, designed to hold 950 inmates. In 1979, the year before the riot, the population of the prison was 970, right at capacity. In an attempt to wrest control of the prison from the inmates in 1976, the new administration removed all inmates from administrative positions and programs, tightened restrictions on inmate movement, stopped outside contact programs, increased drug searches, and clamped down on possible conduits for drugs. The curtailment of drugs in many programs removed the major informal and formal incentive controls over inmates, removed important illegitimate and legitimate opportunity structures within the inmate society, and thus disrupted disrupted important sources of inmate power that had been connected to these incentives. The removal of incentive controls constituted a disruption of the previous accommodation between staff and inmates. Organized protests from inmates quickly erupted. In June 1976, the inmates organized and staged a work strike to protest the new administration's changes. 600 of the prison's inmates participated in the strike, end quote. The new prison administrators, with politicians and the public and their grandmothers breathing down their necks to get tough and do something about the inmates, they took their gloves off. Hardcore force was used to end the strike. 
No one knows exactly what happened, but many prisoners said tear gas was thrown into their cells and the fleeing strikers were forced to run a gauntlet of guards hitting them with axe handles. Organized inmate opposition was thus suppressed. Alleged leaders of the strike were placed in solitary or sent out of the state. One officer later described the breaking of the strike with these words, We were finally showing them who was in charge, and it wasn't them. Indeed, the use of solitary confinement at the prison of New Mexico increased by 200%. Inmates began to cultivate reputations for violence because they found this was the best way to protect themselves, especially from male-on-male sexual assaults. As one author noted, the only alternatives were submission or seeking the protection of officials. Most prisoners preferred to form small groups which offered some protection. A cycle of violence, already present in most prisons, began to escalate out of control. Three and a half years later, they would really find out who was in charge. No one. In 1978, something strange and unprecedented happened. Something which started with the most simple of American pastimes, the game of baseball. One day, Johnny Hernandez was lounging against a fence while his fellow prisoners played a game. The sky was blue, the birds were singing. People seemed happy. It was a good day, at least for a prisoner. That's when Johnny heard something. Three men were walking towards Johnny, and Johnny was all alone, leaning on a fence, suddenly transformed into a trapped rat. Hola, Johnny, one of the men said. You been telling stories to the guards? I ain't been telling nobody nut. But Johnny never finished his sentence because one of the inmates had hit a grand slam with Johnny's cracking skull. Hernandez's body crumpled to the ground as if it was hit by Muhammad Ali. Then the three men were on Johnny with baseball bats. Up and down, they worked the bat specks of blood and human detritus flecked up with each blow. One bat caught Johnny's kneecap, and if you could have zoomed inside Johnny's flesh, you would have seen the knee bone simply explode and shatter, sending biting bone fragments pin-needling through Johnny's abductor long leg muscle. I want you to imagine the tacks from the character Pinhead from the film Hellraiser and insert them inside your own leg at haphazard angles. Such was the way the bone fragmented inside Johnny. But Johnny didn't feel a thing. Mercifully, he had blacked out with the first blow. By the time the guards got to the scene of the crime, Johnny better resembled a giant, bone-laden veal patty bleeding into the brown sand. And the birds still chirped, and the white cotton clouds still leisurely floated by overhead, and the sky was still a brilliant azure, as Johnny Hernandez's shrimp-looking brains leaked into the new Mexican dirt. Three men were convicted of Johnny Hernandez's murder. Three men who remained at the prison of New Mexico and who would form just one of the small cliques operating with total freedom during the bloodiest prison riot in American history. I should tell you that Mark Colvin provides six reasons for the New Mexico riot, and each one was a contributing factor to the bloody outburst. Here are Colvin's contributing factors. One, a new warden, the fourth since 1975, that's four, in four years, began removing inmates from segregation in June 1979 as part of an attempt to receive accreditation for the prison from the American Correctional Association. This placed many of the hardcore violent inmates in the general prison population. Number two, the administration eliminated one of the last remaining formal incentives transferred to a minimum security prison in November 1979. 3. Inmates became frustrated in late 1979 when federal court orders to improve conditions at the prison, a response to the inmates' 1977 class action lawsuit, were sporadically implemented or even ignored by administrators. 4. 
Cell Block 5, which housed the most hardcore violent inmates, was closed for renovation in November 1979. Most of these inmates were transferred to a less secure dormitory, E2. This removed yet another level of containment within the prison. The decision to close Cell Block 5 was made despite warnings of caseworkers, which were never communicated to those in charge. Three months later, the riot began in Dormitory E2. Number 5. On December 9, 1979, 11 inmates escaped. Though all but one were captured and placed in cell block 3 prior to the riot, a sudden increase in searches and restrictions on movement led to increased prisoner frustration. Number 6. The physical weakness of the infrastructure, which normal correctional officers quickly identified and saw, but which the higher-ups refused to fix. So the lower workers are saying, hey, this lock's not working, or... Our doors are broken. We need these fixed. And their higher-up managers sitting safe in their offices just don't care. Now, I'll give you an example. In January 1980, there was an important change in security infrastructure. Bulletproof glass was installed in the control center, replacing steel bars, which had blocked visibility from the control center into the main corridor. The control center houses the keys and controls access for the entire prison. Security personnel expressed their fears about the vulnerability of the glass to their supervisors. These fears were apparently never communicated to administrators in charge of the renovation. On the morning of the riot, inmates quickly broke through the glass, allowing them to quickly spread the riot throughout the prison, because remember, this is the control center where the entire prison is controlled from and all the keys are located. With all the problems I just listed, if those few panes of bulletproof glass had not been installed, the riot would most likely have been contained. It wasn't the fault of the correctional officers on the ground that this weakness was put in place. They repeatedly voiced their concerns about the weakness of the glass, but they were the ones who paid in blood when the glass broke. It's often the men on the ground who pay the ultimate price for the mistakes of the higher-ups. And if you don't believe me, just ask the 400,000 men who froze to death during Napoleon's lackluster invasion of Russia. A bitter and cruel fate is dealt to us over and over again, and yet our mothers still keep giving birth to us. On February 1st, 1980, for the more perceptive observers, both prisoners and staff, there was something in the air. The temperature itself was below freezing, and observant officers saw inmates whispering with one another in small groups. It was foreboding. One staff member called in sick because she had a feeling something bad was going to happen. Yet another instance of female intuition saving lives. One prisoner described the feeling as a sort of shift in the atmosphere, the way a boss sends you a knowing look in the hallway Wednesday morning, and then you get fired Friday afternoon. His eyes tell you that you're in trouble, even if his mouth mumbles hello. Anyway, here's how one inmate remembered February 1st, quote, My gut-level feeling told me something wasn't right, that something big and bad was about to happen, something dangerous, end quote. At 8 p.m. on February 1st, there was a full moon and a stench. A horrible smell was emanating and pervading cell block E2, the row of cells where the most hardcore violent prisoners were kept, even though E2 wasn't designed for risky inmates. Anyway, there's this stench coming out of E2. It was a homebrew distiller, literally cooking a rancid mash of alcohol in the back of the cell block. Even the men cooking the rancid liquid couldn't believe the guards were ignoring the stink of the cooking alcohol. The brew is cooking in eight trash bags in a cardboard box. The men wait until after the last guard check at 10 p.m. to start drinking. From 10.30 p.m. to 12.30 a.m., about 15 of the most violent prisoners 
were drinking heavily with one another. The date was February 2nd, and all hell was about to break loose. An eyewitness remembers how the riot started with these words, quote, At 11.45 p.m., eight well-buzzed inmates sat around a table drinking homebrew, prison brew made out of fermented raisins, yeast, sugar, and water. Angry and loud, they were complaining about prison conditions. Unless something's done soon, the man's going to lock us all down, man. So what are we going to do about it? Another prisoner broke in. We've been talking about a riot for so long now, I'm effing tired of waiting. Okay, what about tonight? The eight men sat stunned for a moment. Then nodding agreement, grins spread across their faces the way a southern man spreads butter across his biscuit. Wide and deep. Well, all right. That's what I want to hear, baby. Meanwhile, at the same time, the 27 employees of the coming graveyard shift gathered for their routine briefing. There is no hint of a coming apocalypse. No one even mentions the foul smell of the home brewery cooking in E2. It was like any other briefing. Nine officers are outside the main complex in towers or on patrol. Two female officers are in the woman's annex located in a building outside the prison's perimeter fence. Inside the prison are 15 guards and one civilian medical technician. These 16 men were supposed to oversee the more than 975 prisoners plotting inside. They were outnumbered nearly 80 to 1. About 60% of these employees have worked in the field for less than four years. Some had worked in prisons for just a few months. These weren't hardcore veterans guarding New Mexico's most bloodthirsty criminals. Many of them were sleepy rookies. The two men in charge of the prison at this time, I'm talking after midnight, were 52-year-old Greg Roybal and his lieutenant, Jose Anaya. Numerous mistakes were made by employees of the prison. First, Central prison grill doors, key choke points of the entire complex, were left wide open. It would later come out that prison authorities liked to leave these steel gates open during the graveyard shift because it allowed them to sneak up on officers who were sleeping on their shift and catch them in the act. There were blue night lights, similar to the red lights utilized in hospitals, that were supposed to illuminate the cell blocks at night. All of these in E2, which you remember is the block housing some of the most violent prisoners or people in New Mexico, They've all burned out and not been replaced. Of course, the burned out bulbs have been reported, and the reports were promptly ignored. The lights were not replaced, and so E2 was a wash in darkness. Consequently, yet another little mistake would cost more than 30 men their lives and hundreds more their dignity. All right, let me explain the layout of the New Mexico Penitentiary. In the middle is the administration area, which is the heart of the prison. Think of it as a giant square with various offices, a chapel, a cafeteria, etc. From this central square, two long rectangular corridors branch out, one going left to the south wing and one going right to the north wing. I can't emphasize how geometric the layout of this building is. It's a mathematician's dream come true, a testament to Westerners' belief in reason, reason personified in architectural form. Anyway, both corridors have still grilled gates blocking access from the corridors to the administration area. Some of these important doors were left open, which will have widespread repercussions later. The cell blocks branch out perpendicular to the main corridors. There are eight cell blocks in the south wing and four cell blocks in the north wing. The North Wing also houses the hospital, where numerous medical drugs such as painkillers are located. And of course, as always, you can see pictures up on the website. Now, the epicenter of the riot was cell block E2, which, if you're looking at the prison on a diagram, is located in the left wing of the prison. Roger Morris describes E2 on the night of the worst prison riot in American history. Quote, 
The bunks of the dorm are, as always, doubled along the sides, set perpendicular to the lateral wall. Two rows of single beds lie down the center of the dormitory, flanking the double bunks, creating two narrow aisles on each side. In the crowded bunking, every space between the double beds is a nighttime hiding place from which a prisoner can jump someone in the aisle. The beds begin close enough to the dormitory entrance for inmates to strike the door in a short bound from where they lie. One officer who works in the dorms regularly, who walks the 60-foot gauntlet, past the double bunks to clear out and lock the day room at the end of the dormitory, will later tell an investigator that every time he reports for night duty, he wonders whether he will leave the prison alive. Tonight is the same, and the men are waiting unseen, end quote. Soon they would strike, and this is how it happened. It was after midnight, after a few of the gentlemen residing in E2 had enjoyed a number of homemade hunch-punch cocktails, that the men's talk turned to how easy it would be to take over the prison. Let's do it, man, one inmate said. Man, you're crazy, responded another. No, I'm serious. Let's take this bitch over tonight. I'm doing it tonight. You going to help or are you going to be a bitch for the guards? Yeah, let's do it. The men nodded, the moonshine burning their throats as they agreed. At 1.40 a.m., they were ready. Three correction officers entered the dormitory, E2. The men weren't overly worried, especially with bullshit procedures. They were violating safety procedures all night, and they'd been doing it for weeks and months and nothing had happened. For instance, they left a key door unlocked on a stairwell leading to E2. It was one of many mistakes. An officer named Martinez unlocked the main door to E2. Inside, hiding in the darkness near the door, a prisoner flinched with excitement and anticipation, his heart racing like a teenager about to lose his virginity. The door opened and Martinez stepped in. Behind him was Captain Roybal, the commander for the night shift, along with another officer named Schmidt. All three men stepped inside ready to check on the dormitory and, even though the lights were out when they weren't supposed to be because no one had fixed the broken lights, the cell block looked good. The prisoner seemed to be sleeping and was almost abnormally correct, a little too correct, the way children suddenly hush up and pretend to sleep when they hear their overworked father's door open in the middle of the night, fearful of waking him up when he's working double shifts. Martinez stays at the door as Schmidt and Roybal walk the cell block, which, if you remember, is literally overflowing with supposedly sleeping prisoners. Schmidt is walking the left aisle, while Roybal walks the right. At any of the many bunks, the men are constantly outnumbered, invulnerable. Now, no one will ever really know what Officer Martinez did at the main door to the cell block. He was standing at the door guarding it, but if it was locked like it was supposed to be, or if it was cracked, or if he had his key in the lock ready to lock it, no one will ever really know. What we do know is Lieutenant Anaya made his way to the door Martinez was guarding. As he walked, he passed through two riot control gates that should have been closed and locked but were not. Those gates would have saved many men's lives and many men's dignity. As it turned out, scores would be killed and raped because of routine negligence. Anaya steps to the door Martinez is guarding. Martinez opens the door to let in Anaya, and that's when it happened, the spark that started the conflagration. Anaya makes his way down the right aisle, the same one that Roybal is further down. At the same time, Officer Schmidt is at the other end of the cell block while Martinez is at the door. Each officer is spread out like a little butter on too much toast, ripe for destruction, outnumbered, and easy to nullify. So of the 15 guards inside the prison housing almost a thousand of New Mexico's most violent offenders, four, or 27%, of the entire guard staff, including the commander, are about to face off against an entire cell block of drunk and brawny felons. 
Men who don't have much to lose and are willing to trade years of their lives for access to narcotics and the orgiastic fun of committing violence against their enemies. These are men who are demonstrably incapable of thinking about the consequences of their actions. Hard men. These were the men who were unleashed on the four officers inside the dungeon of cell block E2. It began when an inmate, quick as a man can grab a willing woman, hurled himself out of bed and towards the main cell block door, a partner trailing two steps behind him. It's said that men often pause in battle, shocked into standing stock still for a few seconds when they are first attacked. The proverbial deer in headlights, just so, Martinez gaped at the men who lunged at him, thinking, This isn't supposed to happen! One prisoner slams his body against the unlocked door and throws the baffled Martinez back. For a few seconds, the three guards in the prison block stop, their hearts clawing into their throats, their arteries trembling as the adrenaline-filled blood jackhammers through the officers' veins. Then there is a yell, DO IT! Jerry Rubin would be proud. In literally ten seconds, each isolated officer is facing down dozens of prisoners. It's no longer the few men who were drinking, but inmates serendipitously join in the uprising now, their faces eager as kindergartners finding their teachers unguarded candy. Now it's time for me to win, their grimacing visages proclaim. And there is a happiness behind the seriousness of their faces, a joy at taking over, the joy of domination. Meanwhile, back at the door, Martinez is getting his ass handed to him by half a dozen inmates. They quickly knock him unconscious and throw the main cell block door wide open. By this time, the result of each struggle is a foregone conclusion. Many of the prisoners literally are weightlifters. Two of the officers are small and middle-aged, no match for the youthful offenders tap-dancing on their faces. The other men are outnumbered, and the prisoners have their own weapons too, shanks, homemade knives, axe handles. In just a few minutes, the officers are beaten and lacerated into quick submission. In less than five minutes, the guards are stripped butt-naked, an ancient sign of humiliation, blindfolded and bound, essentially nullified. That's when one prisoner, on his own initiative, did something that would turn a minor dormitory scuffle into a full-blown riot. The man tied a bandana around his forehead, like a sign of an ancient warrior culture. The bandana represented his colors. Then he announced, I'm going out alone! Then he plunged through the open door and made his way straight as an eternal, never-ending geometric line to the closest group of four guards who were checking other dorms in the left wing of the prison. Hearing the guards working, the lone, muscle-enwrapped prisoner, his tawny skin slick with sweat, his blood bubbling with adrenaline, ran straight at the group of four officers. The inmate was armed with a shank, but the guards were totally unarmed. The five men confront each other in a small vestibule in front of cell block F2. Come on, bitches! The inmate bravely screamed at the four officers, waving his shank as he came on. A 49-year-old officer named Elton Curry, large as a bear but unarmed, steps up like a second Achilles to meet the youthful Khan challenging him. Behind Curry, the other guards, many of them with little experience, cower. They should have thrown their bodies at the convict, overwhelmed him by sheer numbers, taking a few stabs as they did so, but they did nothing. Unarmed, Curry desperately looked for something to ward off the inmate's shank. All he could find was a trash can. Curry shrugged as he took up the trash can. Pop-tart wrappers and ketchup-stained napkins humorously decorated the air as Curry lunged at the shank-wielding inmate once, twice, innumerable times. For about a minute, the two faced off in an even fight. No one had an advantage. Then Curry sees an opening, and using the trash can as a lance, pins the prisoner against a metal railing. 
and pushed with all his might, his fat-laden arms quivering as he pushed. The prisoner shanks, stabbing the air and trash can wildly, like an enraged scorpion's tail flailing against his attacker. The inmate bent over the railing like an expert limbo player, the whole time screaming obscenities. Here in this one moment, the fate of hundreds of victims rests with one overweight man named Ethan Curry, whose chubby face resembled a bowl of figgy pudding as he fought to force the convict over the railing. So much of our life depends on cruel fate, friend. If the other three guards had joined to help their comrade, they would have easily sent the attacking prisoner flying over the railing face first into a concrete slab. Then they could have retreated past the grill door and locked it, letting the rioting prisoner starve sans food, sans dope, sans everything. Or perchance, the other prisoners might have delayed and thus Curry, working alone, might have beaten the lone convict into submission. Maybe there might have been a puddle, and the puddle tripped the convict, while brave Curry kept his feet, stomping the prisoner into unconsciousness as his relieved co-workers looked on with thankfulness. But none of this happened. What really happened is it pleased God to allow the prisoners to escape, and then it pleased God to have the grim-faced prisoners run, skipping like happy rabbits to the sound of the scuffle. When they saw Curry almost overpowering their fellow prisoner, the inmates didn't hesitate. The first one stabbed the worried-eyed Curry in his cheek, the shank blade entering into his mouth and slashing his worming tongue. The inmate who stabbed Curry, with a face of hatred, horizontally yanked the knife in Curry's face, blood spewing out like water escaping from a broken fire hydrant. Then the other convicts were upon Curry, beating, stabbing, stomping because he dared to resist. The other three guards looked on meekly, cowardly geese who had the lying shape of man. They went to their fate with bent heads and meekness in their spines. If only those three guards had been raised from infancy to despise defeat worse than death, to hate losing more than anything. If only they had been given spine and steel, so many deaths and tortures and male-on-male -male rapes could have been avoided. But those three guards were taught that they were special, they were snowflakes, and they bit the knee like special snowflakes. They bit the knee a thousand times in their hearts before they ever bit the knee in the vestibule of cell block F2. To put it succinctly, two guards were taken hostage. However, one slipped away and somehow made his way into cell block F2, where he was protected by sympathetic prisoners. And so we see, in the first few minutes of the riot, there's no overarching leader of the prisoners, but rather there are small groups of friends and comrades doing what seems best in their own eyes. And thus, another 27% of the guards inside the prison were easily nullified. Now the number is over 50% that are gone from the fight. And so, Ethan Curry's body and mind were slashed and hacked. But that's not all. While one of the remaining guards was not molested, the other one was stripped naked, blindfolded, the first torture began. The guard's name was Juan Bustos. The prisoners tied a belt around Juan's neck like a noose, and then dragged his naked body by the noose down a hallway, then downstairs, his body ragdolling across the skin-scraping concrete steps. At the bottom of the stairwell, they beat Juan bloody, happy with exhilaration as they worked. His cowardice gained him nothing but torture and naked humiliation. I mean that literally. With the keys captured from the guard, small groups of prisoners from E2 and F2 made their way throughout the left wing of the prison and unlocked three more dormitories, who suddenly freed inmates themselves flowed into the fast-filling hallway. A mere ten minutes have passed, and already approximately one-third of the prison has been taken over by the inmates. At 1.57 a.m., a prisoner, who had captured the two-way radios from their hostages, announced on the radio, We've got the shift commander hostage. There had better be a meeting with the governor, the news media, and the deputy secretary of corrections, Rodriguez. 
Right after hearing this message in the control center, Lawrence Lucero, a guard with three years of experience, received a call from another guard named Mike Hernandez who's in the left wing of the prison, farthest away from the epicenter of the riot. He tells Lawrence he has seen and heard prisoners on the loose and has locked himself into a central corridor grill. Mike hasn't stopped his capture. He's only delayed it. The prisoners, like another Napoleon, will deal with him after they take care of more pressing matters. W.B. Stone was a convict who was woken at two in the morning by the sound of violent screaming. It was like something from Dante's Inferno. He later described what he saw with these words, quote, I heard the sound of yelling and screaming. First, I thought the guards were dragging another victim into solitary confinement. But these cries were stronger than usual, and they got my curiosity up. I jumped down from my bunk and walked into the shower room to check it out through a window overlooking the control center of the main corridor. I saw screaming inmates, all right, 85 of them, running from the south end up to the control center booth, waving all kinds of makeshift weapons, threatening to sodomize their victims with broom handles. Those in the front of the mob were dragging a barely crawling, naked, blindfolded man by a belt looped around his neck. Those behind were kicking him in the ribs and his ass and whacking him in the legs, which, like his arms, were tied. I saw someone bring a chain down hard across his back, and the man crumbled. The crowd was determined to keep him moving. They kicked him more viciously in his butt, whipping him with their pipes while the one holding the leash yanked it hard until finally the hostage got back on his hands and knees and resumed his painful crawl. Oh, shit, I said to myself. Hell is coming home for breakfast. I saw it all below me through the window, like watching a television, but it was worse because this television threatened to spill out from the screen and sodomize me with a plunger. Oh, shit, was all I could think. It replicated in my mind like a song stuck on repeat. End quote. At two o'clock in the morning, Lucero called another guard and told him to lock a corridor grill that will block the rioting inmates from accessing cell block four, the cell block where all the snitches and tattletales are located. Cell block four is located on the far right of the prison, as far away from the rampaging prisoners as you can physically be. It won't help the informants cowering in cell block four. Pain's coming for them. Around this time, a crowd of rampaging prisoners made their way to the central wing housing the dining area, the administrative offices, and the gym. The cry begins to be heard up and down the hallway. Everyone must participate! Everyone must participate! Most inmates do just that, but not all of them. In cell block E1, a dorm which held younger inmates, many of them who had been sexually abused by the older prisoners, and the young men successfully barricaded their own door. Already, at this early hour, prisoners began to gather outside of E-1, screaming threats in the night, commanding the younger men to come and join the riot, or else. How much pain lay in those two little words, or else. How many broken bodies, how many gallons of blood are hidden in those two little syllables. Now the mob comes to the central wing. Picture middle schoolers taking over the front office of a school, rampaging through the principal's office, dancing on desks as terrified and passive teachers look on. Such was the way the inmates took over the central wing of the prison. In less than three minutes, they had reached the other end of the central wing. Now they had basically taken over two-thirds of the prison. Using the officer Juan Bustos as a naked dog, they kicked him and beat him as they forced him to lead their evil parade down the corridor and into the central wing. They beat Bustos down through the central hall and took a left, where an unknown assailant molested Juan's posterior as another slapped the back of his head. They did this after they passed yet another unlocked hallway grill that could have stopped the rioters. Meanwhile, two guards who had been eating in the cafeteria 
looked at each other with faces of horror, the way a father looks when perusing pornography sites and he accidentally stumbles across a video of his own daughter willfully engaging in debasing sexual acts. Just so, the two guards looked at each other. Outnumbered 250 to 1, there was little they could do. Roger Morris picks up their story. Quote, the two guards named Mendoza and Vigil ran diagonally across the hall some 50 feet to the control center window, where they pounded on the glass to alert an already wide-eyed Lucero and tell him to unlock electronically the near north grill a few feet from the window. Lucero opens the grill slowly, and Mendoza and Vigil rush through, looking behind them at the oncoming flood of prisoners. Vigil, age 47 and a 10-year veteran of the pen, then stands uncertainly behind the grill, watching the riot advance towards him as Mendoza runs down to a telephone at cell block 3 to call his boss. Finding the security superintendent already alerted and on his way to the pen, he then calls the officer in Tower 1, tells him to sound the alarm for the rest of the outside guards and to shoot anyone attempting to escape. In the control center, Lucero has watched the north grill clang shut and now turns to see through the window the angry faces of the first inmates in the corridor. As the rioters rush up to the window, Lucero is joined by yet another guard in the control center. Like other units in the shoddy, decaying building, the control center is being renovated. Newly installed bulletproof glass is all that stands between the two guards in the control center and more than a hundred angry-faced prisoners. One of the rioters demands that Lucero open the gate grill just south of the center, letting the horde into the administrative offices and out the front door of the prison. When Lucero refuses, the prisoners begin to beat Bustos with rods and pipes, shouting that they'll do the same to Lucero. The guards in the control center do not recognize Bustos, but when he sags unconscious from the blows and is dragged away back down the corridor to the south, they assume that the man is dead. That's when the guards stand inside the center. Mendoza and Vigil, all but unnoticed, are 15 feet away behind the north central corridor grill. All of them watch transfix as the inmates begin to beat at the glass with pipes and with a canister fire extinguisher the inmates have found in the hallways. The cons hurl the canister against the glass and it bounces off harmlessly. They throw it again. Nothing. It's 2.02 a.m. and that's when they throw it a third time. And with the third heave, the window glass begins to crack. And on the next two blows, with cheers from the other inmates raining all around them, shards of glass begin to rain into the center. The glass does a fine job in a lot of offices and institutions all over the country, a corrections consultant will say later. The main thing is you just don't let a riot get up to that point. That's when the guards in the control room now back up slowly in disbelief, and they turn to run out. In their fear, they have left behind the equivalent of their regimental guns, all the keys on the center keyboard, a tear gas launcher, 14 tear gas grenades, 24 riot control batons, and a pair of helmets. At the prison's front entrance, the two young guards pause for a moment and return through the office area to see if the inmates have really broken in. They have. A few feet back in, the guards glimpse inmates near the visitor's area, well beyond the control center. Inside the center, though the guards cannot see them, the prisoners have clambered through the shattered glass and now stand over the control console with its electronic locks and keys to the entire institution. Lucero and the other guard run back to Tower 1. They are the first correctional officer refugees from the riot. It is 2.05 a.m. and the prisoners have seized control 
of the state prison of New Mexico. It took less than 25 minutes. End quote. Now, if you remember, there still are a few guards manning the perimeter of the prison. They arm themselves with rusting, ill-maintained riot guns from the armory beneath one of the towers encircling the penitentiary, and the commanding officer orders them to fire on any prisoner attempting to reach the perimeter fence. Meanwhile, the guards on the perimeter are screaming into the phone at the lackadaisical 911 dispatchers, desperately trying to bring in reinforcements from the state police. The prison guards' voices quiver as they try to remain calm, adrenaline playing Vivaldi on their vocal cords. It took the first units of the state police 15 more minutes to reach the scene. 15 minutes doesn't sound like a long time, but when you can hear your friends getting tortured and sodomized while burly prisoners with faces of hate threaten you through flaming windows, I can assure you that 15 minutes is quite a long time. In the meantime, in the right wing of the prison, two veteran guards phone into the front tower and explain they are going to hide in a crawl space below cell block 5. Three other remaining guards lock themselves in the basement of cell block 3, also located on the right wing of the prison. I should tell you in printed accounts, the right wing of the prison is called the north wing, and the left wing is called the south wing. But in almost every diagram of the riot, the wings are located on the right and left of the diagram, and so I am describing them in a way I think will help you understand the atlas I posted on the website. Anyway, as the three guards lock themselves in the basement, they can literally see the prisoners unlocking all of the corridors around them. It's around 2 o'clock in the morning, and basically the entire prison has now fallen to the rampaging inmates. The remaining guards inside the prison have no firearms, are isolated from one another, and are hiding. At the same time, the inmates can link up whenever they want, are arming themselves with weapons from the prison, and can pick off the remaining guards at their leisure. This is a picture of the fall of most castles in human history. This is a true picture of power. Weakness is being isolated, controlled, unable to move, in a word, nullified. Strength is being able to go where you want, to attack when you want, to increase your power through men and weapons. Money and influence have nothing to do with the concrete expression of power. The first hours of the New Mexico prison riot have everything to do with it. Meanwhile, the carnage continued. Picture the worst school in your state, a reform school populated by angry teenagers from broken homes or constantly controlled, and they're made to wear uniforms that they hate. They're talked to by the worst psychologists and social workers who couldn't make it in a better institution and so are flushed to the reform school. Now picture them running riot. See the joy on their angry faces destroying the hated social worker office the psychologist's office, the principal's office, dancing on the desk, pissing in the file cabinets. Such was the way the inmates vented their long-simmering anger on the physical infrastructure of the prison. By 2.15 a.m., the psychology ward was on fire. The prisoners were literally burning it down. It was also at 2.15 that hell was unleashed. Literally the worst, most violent criminals with hatred seared into their hearts and literally tattooed on their forearms were located in cell block 3 on the right wing of the prison. And it was at 2.15 a.m. that the other inmates unlocked the main door to cell block 3 and began setting loose the quivering demons who were hopping with excitement to reap a bloody harvest like another angel of death running through the streets of Egypt indiscriminately taking innocence along with guilty. When these men were released, they bounded out with broad shoulders and skip-hopped in a straight line towards their victims. Blood was coming. When they told me that most of the prisoners in cell block 3 were released, a corrections officer later told an investigator, I said, there's death. There's death coming. Now, if you remember in the basement of cell block 3, there are three guards hiding. 
For some reason, one of the officers, whose name was Mendoza, went back up to the main floor where prisoners were able to see him through the locked prison grill gate. Hey, Mendoza, you better open up now because if you make us break through this door, we're going to kill you, bitch. No way, I'm not letting you in, replied Mendoza. We'll see, bitch. Five minutes later, Mendoza heard something animalistic from the grill door. It was the sound of a human being being tortured. Mendoza, we got someone who wants to talk to you. Mendoza didn't answer, but through the grill he saw a trembling Captain Roybal, surrounded by hulking, angry prisoners. Mendoza, I know you hear me. Open the door, I'm going to kill this son of a bitch. At this announcement, Roybal's heart clawed into his throat. He was almost dying from the sheer stress, and the inmates hadn't even really tortured him yet. Mendoza seriously thought about opening the door, even though it was against correctional policy, but in the end it didn't matter. After 15 incompetent minutes of randomly trying keys with no systematic process at all, one key magically turned the lock and the inmates were in cell block 3 searching the basement for Mendoza and his two fellow guards. A journalist succinctly describes what happened next, so I'll just quote him. Quote, Once through, the inmates demanded that the officers opened the second grill door to the basement where they were hiding. The guards refuse, and when the prisoners eventually find the key to the grill, the guards scurry back behind one more grill and refuse to open this one, despite more threats to Roybal. Finally, the inmates unlock the last barrier, and the three officers are captured, ordered to strip naked, and locked in another basement room of cell block 3. Meanwhile, upstairs, the prisoners have had more trouble opening the two upper tiers of cells where doors are released or unracked by a control panel. They beat and threaten Roybal until he tries to help them operate the mechanism. Even then, though, the tortured captain is too shaky and scared to do much, and a convict from cell block 3, who knows the controls as well as the guards do, joins them to open the panel and roll open the cell doors. It's nearly 3 a.m., the maximum security men of cell block 3 are now free little more than an hour after the lone con from E2 fought his brief life and death duel with Curry. At this hour, the penitentiary is a panoramic stage, the freed men moving back and forth, busy in this corner and that, still largely oblivious to each other, as if they are mingling actors following different plots in some theater of the absurd. In the plumbing shop under the kitchen, they hurry off with a heavy duty acetylene cutting torch and they promptly cut through the grill sealing off d1 in the educational units at the far south end releasing 86 newcomers and diagnostic inmates and seizing guard hernandez the 12th hostage they then roll the torch ahead of them on the floor as they run up the central corridor to cell block five where they cut through plunge to the basement and take two more acetylene torches that were left negligently by the construction crews during the renovation. But somehow, in their frantic grasping for the torches, they do not find two guards hiding in the crawl space nearby. At the same moment, other inmates are ransacking the hospital. End quote. Now the prisoners have acetylene torches, heavy-duty blow torches that can cut through steel. What do you think those torches will do to iron bars of prison cells or to human heads? Listen on to find out. Roger Morris takes up the story, quote, Several yards up the corridor outside the entrance to cell block four, there is already a crowd of inmates, and they will not go away. The corridor grill blocking four and five has been breached, but the grill at the entrance to cell block four is jammed, and neither key nor electronic control will open it. 
Soon they bring the torches to eat at the bars. Inside are the supposed snitches, the members of the other untouchable prison casts, and the men cutting through the bars with torches have scores to settle. Behind the prisoners working the torches, men stand in a straight line, orderly, almost peaceful, impatient, waiting to get inside and kill the snitches. End quote. By this time throughout the prison, a literal orgy of drugs and rape is taking place up and down the corridors. Imagine taking the perversion of the Marquis de Sade and mixing it with the drug-fueled absurdity of Hunter Thompson, and you might have an idea of the pain and pleasure intermingling, even fueling off one another, throughout the dark hellscape of the New Mexico State Prison. Elsewhere, inside, there is a gathering frenzy, punctuated by drug, sex, and an inbred fear now bordering on panic as the riot spreads throughout the prison. Inmates burst into the hospital to pillage drugs, barbiturates, antidepressants, antipsychotics, and sedatives left there in huge supplies by the obliging state policy of purchasing in bulk. The prisoners tumble down the stairs as well to the paint shop and shoe repair store in the basement beneath the kitchen where they can sniff the paint thinner and glue also available in ample quantities. The sniff will make them high and violent while the drugs, soporifics, supposedly sedate them. But pharmaceutical distinctions will not matter very much here. In angry, suddenly free men, even the most powerful downers, may produce a paradoxical rage as experts later label it. In the hospital, rioters devour handfuls of capsules and then stuff more in their pockets. Their look catalogs the reliance of this penitentiary, like so many prisons and asylums, on drugs in lieu of policy and social competence. Damerol, Talwin, and Methadone, Valium, Milltown, Serax, and Dalmain, and numerous other drugs are available in obscene quantities. These are the place names of the cloudy, maddening, hallucinatory world the riders now superimpose onto the prison. And outside in the central corridor, there's yet another extraordinary scene in these first moments between 2 and 3 a.m. Up and down the hall, men are leaning against the wall or kneeling on the floor, bandanas tied in tourniquets on their arms, injecting morphine, liquid Valium, and other drugs into their quivering arms. Other prisoners stand by waiting eagerly for a bandana. After the injection, some rise and reel away, some simply stand there in a stupor. Some vomit and curse, yet pronounce the drugs wondrous, and urge fellow inmates to try it with them. One convict from cell block 3 wanders down the corridor into the administrative area, stops in front of the barber shop, as if fascinated by something there. And then, instead of forcing the barber shop door, he simply jumps through the barbershop window in a hail of shattered glass, opening a large cut near his right eye. In a moment, he emerges from the window armed with the barber's largest scissors. Back in the south wing dormitories, still dark, some illuminated only by random blue nightlights, men are in bed with their homosexual lovers. And outside the barricaded door of E1, a crowd of men still alternatively try to coax or coerce the young inmates of the dorm into coming out. Some are at the door, and they talk soothingly to their lovers inside to see after their welfare. Still other men brandish a large tear gas launcher and talk of smoking out the cowering inmates behind the barricaded door. Everywhere throughout the prison, destruction has already begun. Wanton, spontaneous, fueled by a pervasive loathing. 
Sinks and urinals are bashed. Wall fixtures and fuse boxes are torn out. Bulletin boards and inmate photos before each dorm obliterated. The control center is destroyed. Inmates pass by and jump through the shattered glass just to smash furniture. It is an orgy of revenge on the sheer physical furnishings of the place, a place that, as Foucault notes, is systematically designed to inhibit, limit, and deny the desires and wills of the inmates. Such a process of destruction also explains many riots. Rioters destroyed the twinkling stores with the beautiful, seductive advertisements that have told them, told these poverty-stricken rioters since infancy that they need these luxury items, and then the items are withheld from them. No, it's better to destroy it all if they can't have what they so deserve. The rioters are constantly told they need Chinese-made trinkets. They have to have new phones and shoes, but then the stores and the security guards and police block them from their glittering objects of lust. So take it when you can. How much more peaceful might our cities be if our children were taught self-control and contempt for luxuries the way our pilgrim and pioneering forefathers did? By 4.30 a.m., the inmates themselves had already finished using bunks and whatever they could find to fashion makeshift barriers at key points in the passageways of the prison. This way, any counterattack by authorities would be sopped up and weakened. But the prisoners needn't have worried. There wouldn't be a counterattack for more than a day, and by this time, the inmates began to fear one another. But the real pain fell on the guards. The treatment of each guard is different based on who has captured him and who is guarding him at that particular moment. Keep in mind there is no organized unity for the prisoners. Each man does what seems right in his own eyes, a sort of second anarchy like the time before Noah's flood. And so the guards were mistreated in various ways. Some were stabbed and beaten. Others were forced to perform oral sex on their captors. Some were brutally sodomized with axe handles and riot sticks and, of course, by the prisoners themselves. All of them were naked and bound. At 5.25 a.m., one hiding guard named Herman Gallegos did the unthinkable. Finding some inmate clothes, he put on the attire of a prisoner and simply walked right out the prison, his face as calm as a spring breeze, while inside a tempest ran up and down his nervous system. Gallegos literally walked to the front door and stepped right outside like a boss. It was his own side, the guards who threatened him. Go back! Stop or we'll shoot! They screamed. Then one of the guards recognized Herman. Stop, he yelled. He's one of our men. Then Herman Gallego stepped outside and made his way to freedom. If he had been caught, he was in danger of being split apart by a leg chair. I mean this seriously. He might have been tortured to death. Instead, because of his iron will and a little bit of luck, he was free. What would you do if you escaped that kind of fate? Other captured correctional officers, held by different groups of prisoners, were threatened but not bodily mistreated in any way. Still others were treated humanely and sadistically by an alternating cast of torturers and redeemers. One tortured guard was even taken outside and placed by the front gate to be retrieved before he died of his wounds. As men were tortured and molested to death inside the prison, outside the authorities were organizing a response. The governor was woken and informed about the ongoing riot. 500 National Guardsmen were called in early in the morning hours of Saturday, and they lay siege to the perimeter of the penitentiary. Families of prisoners and news reporters, alerted to the riot by the prisoners themselves, gathered along the main highway outside the prison complex. Inside, the blood really began to flow, and it would keep flowing like a scene from the film The Shining for hours upon hours. But that's next month's podcast.
And that's another one of the books for me. Before I leave, I want to thank everyone who writes in and everybody who leaves a five-star review. I appreciate all of you. Now, I know a lot of you are thinking, why didn't Luke just finish the story and do another double episode? I get that question every few months in email form. We like the show. We don't like it when you split stories over two months. Well, the reason is simple. My life happens. I have things I have to do. Parents who get sick and need help. A community who needs my help. A wife who needs a husband. Work, problems, accidents. My kids breaking their arms every other day. That's why. That's the big secret. So unless one of you is a multimillionaire and wants to fund my work, you're just going to have to wait. And believe me, next month is going to be one of the most sadistic episodes we've ever had. So you better make sure Grandma is out of the room when you turn it on. But until then, I'm Dr. Luke Wolf, and I'm wishing you good times and good weather with good people. Bye.